All right, 1 Corinthians 14, we're going to be looking at verses 26 through 40, so really just the last uh, part of the chapter. Uh, let's uh, open up in a word of prayer, though. Uh, Heavenly Father, um, what a privilege it is, Father, to uh, come on Sunday to gather with your people and to worship you. Lord, we ought to be worshiping you every day. We ought to be thanking you and praising you every day of our lives, Lord, for the grace and mercy that you show us in Christ. But Lord, on this day where you set aside for your worship, we get to gather together with your people and we get to receive from your gracious hands, O oh Lord, the means of grace as you minister to us through your word, as you minister to us through the fellowship that we share as you minister to us through your Holy Spirit, working in and through and among us. So, Lord, we pray for your Spirit now to guide us as we look at these last verses in 1 Corinthians 14. And help us, Lord, to draw away some principles that we can use in our lives, Lord, to further bring glory to your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'll read the passage here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. Paul continues. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. <clears throat> For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forsake to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. So there you have it. The last part of the last chapter in the section on spiritual gifts. As we bring this chapter to a close, um, just as way of reminder, one more time, uh, Paul is addressing the issue of spiritual gifts in the church of Corinth here. Uh, he's attempting to instruct them because he does not want them to be ignorant in how they are to be practiced. So he starts off in chapter 12 by talking about the, the, the unity of the spirit in the diversity of the gifts. And he illustrates that through the illustration of the various members of our bodies united to one body. He talks about how love is uh, the, as I keep calling it, the atmosphere in which these gifts are to be exercised. If they are not exercised in love, they are 
worthless, vain, useless, futile. And then he starts talking about prophecy in tongues in particular because this is what was going on in Corinth. And he tells them that prophecy is better than tongues. And the reason prophecy is better than tongues is because you don't need to interpret prophecy. You just need to speak it forth. The prophecy is then in and of itself useful for the edification, the exhortation, and the comfort of the church. Whereas the tongue speaker needs to have an interpreter. Because the one who is speaking in tongues, as Paul says, is not speaking to men, but to God. So he says you have to have an interpreter. The reason you need to have an interpreter is because if you're just speaking forth in a tongue that no one understands, you are like that, uh, you're, you are making that uncertain sound. You are like that, that uh, instrument that is making a noise that is not distinct. You are speaking into the air because no one understands you. Because Paul then will say, I would rather speak five words with my understanding than teach or then to speak 10,000 words in a tongue. And then, and then last week we looked at verses 25, 20 through 25 where Paul talks about how, in fact, tongues are a sign for unbelievers. Because in a sense, what the, what the speaking forth, the wonderful works of God in a language unknown to anybody, is reminiscent of how God judged Israel in the past. When he was getting ready to judge them, he sent them a nation that spoke in an unknown tongue to speak words of judgment to them. So in a way then, when you speak in tongues in the church and no one's there to interpret, you are withholding, you are concealing what you are saying. It cannot be known to the unbeliever. So the unbeliever or the uninformed person will think that you're crazy and they'll just probably leave. Whereas with prophecy, that the unbeliever, the uninformed, the prophecy serves a, a secondary purpose, which is to convict the unbeliever and to instruct the uninformed. So they hear the words of encouragement, and they themselves are cut to the quick, and as we see here, they fall down on their faces and will worship God and report that God is truly among you. So at this point now, Paul has said pretty much everything he wants to say that, that is sort of the prelude to what he really wants to say to this church here, which is in verses 26 through 40, is to finally address the problem going on in Corinth. So he's laid down the foundation. He has made his argument that prophecy is better than tongues. And now he's going to address what they are, go what they are doing in the church, as we see here. And essentially, the point he's trying to make here is that God is the author of peace, and therefore, there should be order in the church. And the order in the church serves for edification because what's going on in Corinth was not edifying the believers. It was not, it was not doing anything to build up the church. Now you're thinking, well, maybe Paul could have just gotten right to the point, right, instead of spending two and a half chapters getting there. Well, again, he didn't want them to be ignorant. And when you're trying to instruct somebody, you need to lay that foundation again. There'll be other times where he says, you know this already, and he'll just get right to the point. You already know what I, you know, the, the, the theology behind this, so I'm just going to tell you, you need to change this, or you need to fix that. But here he says, look, maybe I wasn't as clear about what the spiritual gifts were, so let's lay this foundation for you before we get into the problem. So he's going to address the problem here, and the I mean, it, it, when you read through this, except for maybe verses 34 and 35, 
there's really, it's not really a difficult passage, right? You're being, you're being disorderly in the church. How do you fix that? Well, become orderly, <laughs> right? If you've, got, if you've got a free-for-all for tongue-speaking and prophecy, how do you fix that? Well, let's, let's start off. How about doing one at a time, okay? Two or at most three. So, I mean, these are very practical instructions for the situation that's going on in Corinth. So there's not a lot of like, oh, how do we, how do we interpret this? How do we understand that? So it's not a very difficult passage. So you may be looking at your outline and seeing six points on the outline and thinking, well, if he can barely get through three points on a normal Sunday morning, how's he going to get through six? We're going to be in this section for like three weeks running, right? It's like, no, because there's really not, it's not a difficult passage except for some parts in here that we'll, and we'll get to them when we get to them. So the first thing Paul does here in order to address the problem in the church is he gives forth a principle in verse 26. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together? So there's your indication that this is also happening in the church. When you come together, when you gather together as a body. Now, I'm going to pause here for a second. Remember, they don't gather together like we gather together in a building like this, right? Remember, they would have house churches. They may have had many house churches given the size of Corinth in that day and age. But he's, he's instructing the, the church there, whenever you gather together, however you gather together, you, what's going on right now is that you have each one has a psalm, a teaching, a tongue, and a revelation, and an interpretation, Okay, so you've got many gifted people there. You've got people who are gifted in singing, teaching, speaking in tongues, uh, receiving revelations, and interpreting the tongues. So because you've got this, all, this things, all these things going on in the church, what do you need to do? Well, you need to let all things be done for the edification of the body, for the building up of the body. We've seen this word a lot through these passages here, edification. Or building up. If you have a New King James, you might have a footnote there that says building up. Again, it's that word oikodome. Okay? Oikodome. We get the word economic from it. The house law is what it is. The house law. The building up of this church. So that principle is very simple. However, whenever you gather together, whatever you're going to do in the church, it needs to be done for the edification of the church. That's been Paul's point throughout this whole section, and he continues to make that point. The point of the church, the point of the gathering of the church, is for the edification of the saints. Now, the implication is, because what, were they, were going, what they were doing there was that this was not being done in, in Corinth. They were not gathering together for the edification. If Paul says you need to gather together for the edification of the body, you can imply that that's not what they were doing. So what were they doing? Well, it was probably a free-for-all is what it seems like, right? Each one has a psalm, a teaching, a tongue, a revelation, an interpretation. It's kind of like all going on at once, this, this big kind of spiritual, uh, you know, vaudeville show or however you want to put it, right? Because it was not for the building up of the body. It was not for the edification of others. It was for, in a sense, self-promotion. It was in a way of sort of promoting oneself, showing how gifted you are. Now, these things here that he mentions, right, psalms, uh, teachings, tongue-speaking, revelation, interpretation, they're not bad things. They're very good things, right? I mean, it's good to sing in church. It's good to have teaching in church. 
It's good to, you know, in this, in this context, to have, a, to have a, a speaking in tongues, to have a revelation, to have the gift of interpretation. These are all things that were needed for the church because these are, you know, we looked at it a couple of weeks back, right, in, the, in chapter 12 when he gives the list of the gifts. These gifts were given by the Spirit to the church to build up the church. So these are not bad things. So it's not the, it's not the gifts that are bad. It's how they were abusing them that was bad. They were abusing the good things that God had given them. They were doing it without love, which is why Paul hammers love in chapter 13, right? You know, it doesn't matter how gifted you are. If you're not exercising your giftedness with love, you might as well be speaking to the air. You might as well be nothing. It profits you nothing. You are nothing, and you sound like nothing, right? Those are the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13. In Romans 14, 19, in the same context, uh, there in, in, in Romans, uh, Paul there says, let, Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. So Paul's encouragement to the Roman church, again, is to seek peace in the church and to seek the edification of one another. This is the message of the entire New Testament, right? It's a message of the entire Bible, right? That you must look out for the interests of others. Do not be self-interested. You need to look out for the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which was also in Christ Jesus, whom, you know, though he was sitting at the right hand of God the Father, did not consider it to, to hold on to that, to grasp onto that, but he let it go in order to come into this world to save sinners, so Christ relinquished his own self-interest in order to give his life as a ransom for many. And that is the same mind that we ought to have. We ought to have the mind of Christ in that regard. Ephesians 4 talks about how God had given to the, to the church gifted men. And there was a purpose for all of that. Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, this is another section on spiritual gifts. Uh, we could start in verse 7 there in Ephesians chapter 4. And like he says to the Corinthian church, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore he says, and he quotes from Psalm, I think it's what, 69 if I'm not mistaken? 68. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Then there's this section here in verses 9 and 10. I'm going to skip over that. Drop down to verse 11. And he himself gave, so this is Christ, he himself gave to the church some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why? Chapter, verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Again, these gifts are given, and gifted people are given to the church for the equipping of the saints, to build up the saints, to give the saints what they need in order to function in the church and in the world for the work of the ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ. So all these gifts that, that were given to the church are good things, but they were being abused by the Corinthian church because they were not looking out for the interests of others. Now this idea here also of Letting all things be done for, the, for edification speaks also against the false use of gifts. And, and 
It doesn't, it doesn't explicitly say this in these passages, but in chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 3, when we looked at that passage uh, some time ago, uh, in particularly verses 2 and 3, uh, Paul there says, You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse, and no one can say that Jesus is the Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So in a way there, you can almost imply from that as well that perhaps there was a, a false use of these gifts or a false tongue speaking, a false prophecy. Because Paul says, look, whatever's going on in your church, if you're being filled by the Spirit and being led by the Spirit, if you're gifted by the Spirit, you will not say, by the Spirit of God, Jesus is accursed. Those two just don't go together. right? And you cannot say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Spirit. So perhaps there were... Uh, false uses of the gifts in Corinth. Perhaps there were some people there still caught up in their old pagan ways and, and, and it's probably spilling out into their worship here because their, their old pagan ways of worship would have been more ecstatic, right? More sort of, um, you know, less refined, less um, reserved, if you will. Perhaps, you know, just kind of ecstatic utterances might have been characteristic more of their worship then. And Paul is also going to be speaking out against that as we go on. So he's given the principle in verse 26. Now he's going to apply that principle in three different areas. First, he's going to apply it to tongues. He's going to apply it then to prophecy. And then we're going to see here, he's going to apply it to women. And it's kind of interesting, it's whether or not you think that that is a separate section on its own, or whether it kind of goes under the, the heading of prophecy. But either way, he's taking this principle now, he's going to apply it to tongue speaking, he's going to apply it to prophecy, and he's going to apply it to women. In verses 27 28, he applies the principle to tongues. So again, let everything be done in order, let everything be done for the edification. How does it apply to tongues? Well, verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two, or at most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. Okay, so he gives here four simple rules on how to exercise the gift of tongues in the church that will be for the edification of the body. The first one is two or most three. Okay, <laughs> so perhaps what was going on there is that all the people who had the gift of tongues were sort of like speaking over one another, all kind of going off at once. It's like, no, 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 hold off, okay, cool down. If you're going to use this gift in the church, two or at most three. Let's not have the entire church service be given over to the speaking in tongues. You need to do it in order, okay, not two or three at the same time, two or three successively. One gives, his, he, one gives praises God in his foreign tongue. Another one goes off and so on and so forth. Three, you need an interpreter. You need an interpreter. You cannot use t tongues in the church setting for the edification of the body without an interpreter. Fourth rule, if you have no interpreter, guess what? Keep silent. Keep silent. He uses that word Three times in this passage, that word really is only used nine times in the New Testament, three times in this passage, he's going to tell the tongue speaker in certain situations, you need to keep silent. He's going to tell the prophet in certain situations, you need to keep silent. 
And he's going to tell the women in the church that you need to keep silent. So it means to keep silent, to hold one's peace. So the simple rules, two or three, in order, with an interpreter. If there's no interpreter, sit down and be quiet. <laughs> I could say something else. Sit down, close your mouth, okay? Use your tongue then privately. Speak to God by yourself. Pray to God by yourself. And again, no ecstatic tongue speaking, right? The way the pagan worship kind of setting kind of went was it was sort of like you were given over to the spirit. You had no control over these things, and you would just you know, start speaking forth in, in unknown uh, sounds, unknown languages. So he's like saying, look, the fact that I'm telling you to do it in order, and if you don't have an interpreter to keep science, like, keep those old pagan religious practices out of the church. There's no space for this. this is, that's old pagan practices, and it has no business in the church. Tongues is not speaking to men, as he says earlier in verse 2, it is speaking to God. Praising God in a tongue is not edifying without the interpretation. You need the interpretation. So that's how the argument is applied to tongues. Now he's going to apply it to prophecy, verses 29 through 33. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And I'm going to hold off reading that last section in verse 33. The reason I'm going to hold off is because there's a strong argument that believes that that should really lead into verse 34. But be that as it may, we'll get to that in a moment. So now you've got the simple rules here for prophecy. Very sim similar to tongues, right? Two or at most three. In order. <laughs> All right? And instead of needing an interpreter, you need someone to discern the prophecy. You need someone to judge whether that, what you're speaking forth confirms or confers or, or connects with what, what else has been said. You need a discerner. And if someone else receives a revelation while you're speaking, you need to keep silent so that person can come up and provide their, um, their edification, their, their prophecy. So again, very similar. Uh, order in the church. Two or at most three, in order, you need someone to discern. And if someone else receives a revelation, that person gets priority. Now you have here the others judge at the end of verse 29 there. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. There's some debate as to who the others are. Are we talking other prophets? Are we talking other people in the church? Are we talking the elders in the church, those who are uh, gifted and given to the church to oversee the spiritual welfare of the church? Uh, it could, you could say, based on chapter 12, verse 10, that is, those who have been given the gift of discerning the spirits. Right? Chapter 12, verse 10 says, To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. In 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, This idea of 
discerning the prophets. You see this here in, in three verses, very short, because Paul, at the end of 1 Thessalonians 5, is kind of giving these little short commands in a staccato kind of manner here. And in verse five, or chapter 5, verse 19, he says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Test all things, including the prophecies of the prophets. Test all things. We see this again in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 also gives uh, some instruction in this as well, where John there tells his readers, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard, was coming and is now already in the world. So John here gives, he tells the church, Look, if someone comes to you bringing a a word of revelation, you need to test that. Well, how do you test that? Well, if that word of revelation is saying Jesus Christ is not coming to the flesh, guess what? It's a false prophecy, right? Just like what Paul says in chapter 12. If someone says Jesus is accursed, then you know that that is not a, a, a given by the Spirit of God. So you need to test the prophets. You need to discern. You need to discern. It's not that the that if it's given by the Spirit, that it's wrong. But, you know, we, we believe that the Word of God is inspired, right? It's, it's God's holy, inspired Word. Yet, as a preacher, as a teacher, I can misinterpret what is in here. I can be mistaken about my understanding of something in here. Same thing with, an old, with a New Testament prophet. He can be given a, a, a perfectly good revelation, but perhaps the prophet misunderstands it. Perhaps the prophet uses the wrong words to express it, which is why you need discernment. You need someone there to judge the prophecy so that you do not say forth something that is wrong in the church. There's an interesting case of this in the Old Testament. I know it just popped in my mind when I was going through this. In 1 Kings, I think it popped into my mind because I had to do a Hebrew lesson on it. <laughs> we had to translate the passage in, from Hebrew. But in 1 Kings chapter 22, this is during the time of King Ahab. And if you know anything about King Ahab, King Ahab was the worst king. Okay, right? It was said of him that no king before him was as bad as Ahab. And, and Ahab, of course, is married to who? Jezebel, right. So Jezebel was a, a Baal worshiper, and, she, uh, and, and Ahab just kind of willingly went along and allowed Baal worship to go forth in, in the northern kingdom of Israel. And this time also, you have Jehoshaphat, who is the king of Judah. So in 1 Kings chapter 22, we see here, starting in verse 1, Now three years passed without war between Syria and Israel. So that's the northern kingdom, and then Syria is north of Israel. Then it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went down to visit the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, 
Do you know that Ramoth in Gilead is ours, but we hesitate to take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? So he said to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to fight at Ramoth Gilead? Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Also Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, please inquire for the word of the Lord today. Okay, so Ahab has this idea, says, all right, there's this territory that used to be ours, and I want to take it. Will you fight with me? And Jehoshaphat's like, yeah, of course. Yeah, we're, we're brothers, right? You know, we're both, you know, peop, you know, children of Abraham. But can we at least inquire of the Lord first to see if this is something that is of the Lord's will? So verse 6, the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 of them, so a lot of prophets, and said to them, shall I go against Ramoth-Gilead to fight or shall I refrain? So they said, go up, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. So you got all these 400 prophets, right? And they say, yes, the, the Lord has given the, the area into your hand. Go up and take it. All right, now we should beware, right? <laughs> consensus does not mean truth, <laughs> right? You see this even today, right? A consensus of scientists say this, and, and you realize, well, okay, just because the majority says yes doesn't mean that it's true, so Jehoshaphat says in verse 7, Is there not still a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? So I don't know who these 400 prophets are. Perhaps they're the prophets of Baal that, that, that Ahab had hanging around. I don't know what's going on here. But Jehoshaphat's like, let's, let's inquire actually of the Lord. I want to hear what the Lord has to say, not what your 400 prophets have to say. So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Well, there is still one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord. But I hate him. <laughs> I hate him. Why? Because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. <laughs> so there is one prophet we can inquire of, but I don't like him because he doesn't say anything good about me. So I don't listen to him. I like, I like the 400 here, right? It's 400 against one. And Jeho Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say such things. Then the king of Israel called the officer and said, bring Micaiah, the son of Imlah, quickly. The king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, having put on their robes, sat each on his throne at a threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets prophesied before them. Now Zedekiah, the son of Chenana, okay, say that ten times fast, had made horns of iron for himself, and he said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall gore the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so, saying, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the king's hands. Then the messenger who had gone to call Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Now listen, the words of the prophets with one accord encourage the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak encouragement. So now they're trying to get him to, to agree. It's like, look, it's 400 to 1. Don't be the one, okay? Just go along with what everyone else is saying. And Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, whatever the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And he came to the king, and the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. So the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you? That he, would prophesy, that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? <laughs> so here you've got 400 false prophets who are telling the king, 
do this. The one true prophet is the one who is sitting here and says, no, I saw that your nation would be scattered. But this idea of false prophets here, uh, like I said, just kind of came to me as I was going through that. So back to 1 Corinthians 14. The prophets need to be discerned. Whatever the prophets speak, you need to discern among them to judge whether what they say is actually the truth. And again, we see here in verse uh, 31 that prophecy here is for the instruction and the encouragement of the church and thus the need for peace and order in the church. And he goes on in verse 32 to say that the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words, this also speaks out against the old pagan practices of ecstatic utterances, of being filled with some demonic spirit and speaking forth uh, evil words or whatever. Um, he's saying, look, the prophet is in control of his spirit. It is not the spirit that is in control of the prophet. It's the prophet who is in control of the spirit. So that's how you, you know that you can do this in order, in an orderly fashion, and that you're not channeling some demonic spirit because the, 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 the spirits of the prophets are, are, are submissive, if you will, to the, the prophet. No ecstatic prophecy, no losing control, none of that. And again, as we see in verse 33, rules are needed in worship because God dictates how he is to be worshipped. And he is a God of peace, not confusion. And word there for confusion is katastasia. You can kind of hear the word stasis or in there. It's, it means instability, disorder, confusion. That's not what God is about, and that's not how his worship is to be. God has dictated how we, he is to be worshipped, and he's not to be worshipped in a chaotic, spiritual free-for-all in the church. Orderly, peacefully, for the building up of the church. Now, the moment you've all been waiting for, <laughs> verses 34 and 35. And as I said, um, I think... I think a good argument could be made that the last half of verse 33 belongs to verse 34. Uh, some, uh, your ESV may have it that way. Yeah. Um, you have to remember verse numbers again. And you know this. Verse numbers, chapter numbers, paragraph breaks were not in the original. Uh, so this is all based on, on the interpreters, translators, putting these things together. But verses 30, I'll read the second half of 33 into 34 and 35. So as in all the churches of the saints, let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive. That's the same word as the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. As the law says, and if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in the church. Now there's some textual issues with this, Okay. Uh, you don't see it in the New King James because they don't have a footnote for it, but you might have it in ESV. I don't know. But when you look at some critical texts for this, there's, there is a textual issue. And the textual issue is that verses 34 and 35 in some ancient manuscripts are not where they are in this passage. They are included after verse 40. So the way they are in some manuscripts is it reads, you know, chapter 14 be 1 through 33, then 36 through 40, and then 34 and 35 at the end. Now, it's only in a handful, 
right? In the vast majority of manuscripts, it's right where it should be, which is why in most translations, and in fact all English translations, 34 and 35 fall right where they should be. Some think it's a scribal error. And the reason they say they think it's a scribal error is because if you go back to chapter 11, verse 5, this is the um, head coverings passage, another passage I so enjoyed going through. <laughs> In chapter 11, verse 5, we see here, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. Now, it's saying there that a woman in church needs to have her head covered. She needs to show her sign of submission to her husband. But it does not, it seems at least, to not prevent her from praying or prophesying in the church. So some think that this is a scribal error because it seems to contradict chapter 11, verse 5. It also seems to contradict chapter, or Acts chapter 2. When Peter quotes from uh, the prophet Joel in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, he says, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And we also know in Acts chapter 21, verse 8, that the... Um, Philip, the evangelist, had four virgin daughters who were given the gift of prophecy, and they prophesied. So what do we say about all this? So the questions that arise are, is this a general command to be observed in the church for all time that women are to just keep silent, to keep their mouths closed? Because 1 Timothy 2 would seem to suggest that. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul says to Timothy... I do not permit a woman to teach in the church, to have authority over the men of the church. So in that case, you could say, well, that seems to be a pretty strong argument that no women pastors, no women elders, no women teaching in a mixed situation of men and women. Women can certainly teach other women. Women can certainly teach children. But women cannot teach in a mixed setting like this because Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach in the church or have authority over a man? Or is this passage here in 1 Corinthians 14 a corrective for something that's going on in Corinth? So is it something that is general for the entire church or is it something that is limited to what is going on in Corinth? Now, for what it's worth, a lot of the commentaries I looked at at this argue that the, uh, the directive here for women to keep silent in the church is a reference to not discerning prophecy in verse 29, where it says, let two or three prophets speak and let others judge, let others discern. The women are not to discern the prophecies. The women are not to speak forth and judge the prophecies because that would be a violation of 1 Timothy 2 in which they are, in a sense, teaching and exercising authority over the men in the church. That is the job of the elders, that is the job of those who are gifted in the, with the gift of discernment. I'm not exactly sure where to fall on this one. All right. Um, I think the argument about not discerning prophecies seems to carry some weight, but it just says, let your women keep silence. So, I mean, it's also kind of just plainly says there, 
let your women keep silent, for they're not permitted to speak. But if they have questions, so perhaps it's also a directive that if they have questions in a church setting, they're not to interrupt the church setting, but to hold on to those questions and bring them home to their husbands and ask them later. It's a difficult passage, and I don't, I lean toward the keeping silent means not discerning the prophecies. Um, I think 11 verse 5 does seem to suggest that there is a setting in which women can pray and prophesy as long as they're showing submissiveness to their husbands. But you have there that reference to the law as the law uh, instructs, right? As the law also says. And there's no specific law that speaks to this. Most commentators and commentaries and cross-reference Bibles point to Genesis 3.16, Now, Genesis 3.16, that is, of course, after the fall, when God curses the serpent, then God turns to the woman and pronounces the curse on the woman and says that you will have uh, trouble in childbearing. And then he goes on to say that your desire will be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And in, in that verse, I believe, is what you have, the birth of the war of the sexes, in a sense, right? Because that's been the case ever since the fall. Women have desired to be in the position of the men, and the men have, desire, have, have desired to sort of subjugate the women. That is how it works out sinfully. right? Women seek to usurp men's authority. Men seek to continue to dominate women in society. Now, of course, all of that is sort of fixed when you come to Christ, and you recognize that at the foot of the cross, there is no male or female. That at, and that within the Christian family, you have a godly submission of wives to their husbands, husbands self-serving their wives, not serving themselves. So you've got that corrective in Christ. But it would seem here that perhaps the law here is a reference to that Genesis 13, in which the law says that the women should not try to usurp the authority of men in the home or in the church. So those are the principles applied to tongues, to prophecy, and to women. And now, real briefly, at the end here, Paul issues a challenge in verses 36 to 38, where he says, Or did the word of God come originally from you, or was it only that it, you that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. So he challenges them, right? Because the Corinthians were arrogant. We knew that. They, they've been arrogant this entire letter. In fact, in f- chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says, you know, you know, uh, what, you know what does he say in chapter 4, verse 17? I, I had it in my memory, and it just kind of popped out. Uh, but in chapter 4, verse 17, he basically says, have you arrived? Um, verse 8, for you are already full, you are already rich, you already reigned as kings without us. For indeed I could wish that you did reign, that we might also reign with you. I mean, the Corinthians were arrogant. And Paul here is challenging them. It's like, look, the word of God has not only come to you, I'm the one who delivered the word of God to you. The word, all, the, the Lord also speaks through me. And if any one of you think that you are a prophet or spiritual, you need to acknowledge that what I write to you, as he says, is the word of the Lord. That I'm giving you the word of God. I'm the one who's delivered the word of God to you. So they weren't the only ones to whom the word of God came. Paul also delivered the word of God to them. And as an apostle, he spoke the word of the Lord to them. And he carries the authority of an apostle. 
and I'm trying to wrap this up real quick here, and he concludes in verses 39 and 40. And this is really just a summary. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. It's just a summary statement of what he said as he closes his argument. Again, these gifts, prophecy, tongues, they're good. They were given by the Spirit. Uh, exercise them. Desire them. Seek them out. But everything in the church needs to be done orderly and with uh, decently and in order for the edification of the church. And just to wrap up as far as a word of application is, whatever we do in the church needs to be done not in a self-serving way, but done in order to build up the body of Christ. We have the sure word of the Lord here, and, and, and the church services need to be an orderly affair, Right? That's why we have an order of worship. That is why we have a liturgy, if you will. It just means an order of worship. We don't just worship in any free-for-all. We don't just let people come up and do whatever. We do encourage the use of the gifts. If you're gifted, we do encourage you to use your gifts for the building up of the church. But that's the point. It's for the building up of the church. It is not for self-promotion. It is not for self-service. It is for the benefit of others, and I really do need to wrap up here. So anyway, uh, we'll stop here. Next time that I'm here, it'll be two weeks, we'll have uh, David Wojtek here next week. He'll lead Sunday school, but in two weeks when I come back, we're going to begin one of my favorite chapters, chapter 15, and we'll look at the first 11 verses in two weeks.